Listener Production. Hey, Tom Tilly and Katrina Blouse with you for the briefing on this Monday, the 3rd of July. And Katrina, we're going to try and do something a little bit differently here in this episode of The Briefing. Yeah, we're going to shake things up a little bit. Um, We've had some feedback that some of you love the headlines first, but some of you love to listen to the briefing topic first. So we're going to just swap things around just for a little while to see what works, what you guys are enjoying. So make sure you give us plenty of feedback and let us know whether you like the changes that we're about to give you. Yeah, so the feedback is that a lot of you will choose to listen to the briefing based on the topic, something that interests you, which means you might not necessarily be listening on the day that the headlines are fresh. So then you have to scroll through the headlines to get to the briefing. So this way, if you are listening on the day that it comes out, you'll still get the headlines. They'll just come at the end. But if you are listening later on because you saw something a few days ago that you found really interesting, then you'll hear it without having to scroll through. So Let's see how it works. As we said, um, it's not set in stone. We're just trying to improve the podcast as we go. We're in our fourth year now, so you should never close your mind to changes or improvements, right, Katrina? No, never, never. We can always do better, (laughs) definitely. So the headline's in a moment, Um, but first, Katrina, your briefing on altitude training. Anything that can burn more calories in less time definitely gets my attention. I know that altitude training has been around for years now, but it is having a little bit of a moment with gym chains like Airlocker popping up around the country. There's Pilates sessions at altitude and people I know, uh, let's face it, they are quite wealthy people, not everyday people, but they are even having altitude rooms installed in their houses. So... I was wondering, is altitude training worth all the hype? And can you really burn double the calories just by doing the same workout in a different place? Dr. Andrew Govis is a senior lecturer in sport and exercise science, and he joins us on the briefing now. First up, what is the science behind high altitude training? How does it actually work? So there's two main types of altitude training. You've got long-term altitude training, which is where somebody will go and live at altitude for quite a while, usually in the realm of about 12 to 14 hours. And that's either in a natural altitude environment. So for example, in Australia, it'd be somewhere like Perisher, or they can go and train in a simulated environment. Now, the other form of altitude training or hypoxic training, as we call it, is basically where somebody actually exercises in a low oxygen environment. So this is what we call simulated altitude training. And that's usually where somebody's performing, say, repeated sprints, in a low altitude environment. Let's talk about some of these gyms that a lot of my friends are going to at the moment. How do they work? What kind of workouts do you do in those environments and and how do they simulate, I guess, that high altitude environment? With a lot of these new gyms that are popping up, essentially what happens is usually when we breathe, there are three main gases in the air. So you've got nitrogen, you've got oxygen, you've got carbon dioxide. The way they work is they basically pump out the oxygen in the room and they replace it with a bit more nitrogen. So when we're breathing, usually we'd have about 21% oxygen in the air that we breathe in. By replacing that with a bit more nitrogen, that would simulate an altitude in the realm of around sort of 2,800 metres to about 3,500 metres, depending on how you set that. So the idea with these gyms is that by pumping out 
the nitrogen having a lower oxygen environment, we can simulate those sort of high altitude conditions. Now, this is a little bit different from what would happen, say, in natural altitude environments. Usually, if you're going up a mountain, for example, then you would have a lower barometric pressure. So that basically means that the air pressure is lower. And because you've got lower air pressure, it means that you're going to have less oxygen tension in the blood. And that basically means that there's less oxygen available to deliver around the body on your red blood cells, so on your hemoglobin. And that means that there's going to be less oxygen going to your skeletal muscle, which means if you're exercising, you might get tired a little bit easier. So it's going to increase the intensity of your exercising. So when they say you can burn more calories by just doing the same workout that you'd ordinarily do, is that because your body has to work harder to pump your blood around your body? <laughs> Talk to us, give us the layman's explanation for that. Yeah, so basically on that one, because you've got less oxygen available, it means that the actual intensity of exercise is higher. So if you imagine, for example, let's say we had an athlete and they were running on a treadmill at 15 kilometers per hour, which is about four minutes per K. If they were doing that in normal conditions, so in normoxic situation as it is, then that would be their usual sort of intensity they're exercising at. Now, if they were to do the same exercise in a hypoxic environment, then all of a sudden they're having to work much harder. And the reason for that is basically they've got less oxygen going through to the skeletal muscles, which means their body, i.e. their heart and their lungs, are having to work much harder to essentially get the oxygen to the skeletal muscle to do exercise, really. So I suppose on that basis, wow, then okay. the calories that they burn would be a little bit more as a result of the increase in exercise intensity. But the issue with altitude, so exercising in this low oxygen environment, it means that you're less able to replenish your energy system, which is the phosphocreatine system, so that short high intensity system, effectively in a low oxygen environment. And part of the reason for that is that you actually need oxygen in order to replenish these energy systems. And obviously, you've got less oxygen that's available in the uh, high altitude, i.e. low oxygen environment. So what sort of exercise is best suited to these kind of simulated environments? Is it just sprinting on a treadmill or can you do your regular weights workout? I mean, I've noticed that there are Pilates sessions even popping up at altitude. Yeah, essentially you can do anything in a hypoxic environment. So be that your weight training or be that your repeated sprint training. That could be either on a bike or on a treadmill or even Pilates if you wanted. The point being here is that the research at the moment demonstrates that the hypoxic exercise training is most effective when you're doing something like repeated sprint training in the lower oxygen environment. Essentially, when you get somebody going to high altitude and they're living there for, say, three to four weeks, so that's the typical kind of altitude training that we think about, usually what they'd be doing is they'd be producing more red blood cells in the body. And the more red blood cells they have, that means that the more oxygen that they can then deliver to their skeletal muscle. But that will take around sort of 12 to 14 hours per day exposure to altitude. And they'd need to be living there for about two to three weeks to stimulate what's known as a reflipoasis, which is the creation of new red blood cells. Now, if we contrast that with the kind of exercise that you're doing in, say, an altitude gym, they're only going to be in the low oxygen environment for about 90 minutes. And that's not really long enough to stimulate an increase in red blood cell production, even if they're doing it over multiple weeks. So even, even if they're doing it sort of eight weeks in a row, they're still not going to increase their red blood cell production. So 
what they'll be doing then instead is increasing what's known as the glycolysis pathway. And the glycolysis pathway is generally that short, kind of about 30 to 40 second bout uh, sort of energy system that we have. So you imagine if somebody's running, say, a 400 meter race, that's the kind of energy system that they would use for that. So this is why in those kind of environments, you need short, high intensity work because you're not going to stimulate more red blood cell production. But what you might do is increase your ability to use some of those um, or replenish oxygen or ATP as it's known, which is the body's kind of energy substrate that it uses during exercise more effectively. But you need to be doing this pretty regularly is what I'm hearing. Yeah. So like anything with uh, performing exercise, you need to be doing it at least two to three times per week over the period of around sort of six to eight weeks to see those adaptations. So if you were to take a matched kind of workout, let's say three to four weeks worth of training in a normoxic environment compared to the hypoxic environment, then you might see some additional benefits training in hypoxia. But yeah, like anything with exercise, you need to be doing it regularly. And generally, the National Physical Activity Guidelines at the moment recommend at least a minimum of 150 minutes over the week and two to three sessions of resistance training per week. So at the bare minimum, you need to get that amount of exercise in over the weeks and months that you're using the hypoxic environment. Is this for everyone? I mean, are there people who potentially shouldn't do this kind of training? So it's really important whenever you do any form of exercise that you go through a thorough pre-screening, so medical pre-screening on that. And uh, whoever is in charge then of, of these altitude gyms should be doing a thorough pre-screening anyway. And so people that generally have sort of what we would call a chronic and complex condition, so it might be that they, they have things like diabetes or they have things like hypertension or chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, those sorts of things. They would generally need some form of medical sign-off by their GP before they go into this kind of environment and do exercise there. So I wouldn't recommend it for somebody if they have that kind of condition unless it's prescribed by the GP and it's supervised quite clearly by an exercise physiologist. Is this something you could do every day or is it something, and, and you know, again, I'm talking about your regular late person here. Is it something that you should be doing to kind of supplement what you're already doing to get those extra gains? Yeah, I mean, it, it is something that you could do every day if you had access. Let's say hypothetically, I've built an altitude gym in my house, then I could definitely go and do something in there every day and be totally fine. But um, generally on that, I would recommend if it's going to be used, probably only need about two to three sort of high intensity sessions per week because it's going to increase the intensity with which you're working at. So, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend more than about two to three sessions per week using a hypoxic session. And that, that's true for the layperson. That's true for the athlete as well. So has enough research been done to conclude that this works? I mean, how much research is out there? So the type of research that's out there at the moment is essentially we need more research on repeat sprint training and sort of just training in hypoxic conditions in general, especially these acute environments. So if it's only about 90 minutes worth of exposure, then we really need to do a lot more research to understand some of the physiological benefits and adaptations that we're getting from that kind of training. Now, in terms of that, when we have a look at is the research clear on whether it works or not for the average person, I would probably say on that for the moment, it's inconclusive. So on that, I probably wouldn't recommend it as my first point of call for the lay person. 
However, if you've got an elite athlete, for example, if we take an elite rugby player and they're looking to increase their repeated sprint performance, then there's reasonably clear evidence there that repeat sprint training performed in low oxygen environments does improve repeat sprint abilities. So that's really where the evidence is at from that short exposure. But certainly for the layperson, I think there's definitely a lot more research that's required to understand some of the health benefits. So what does it do for blood pressure, for example? What does it do for glucose tolerance, for example, for people that might have diabetes? So all of that is emerging research at the moment, but there's definitely a lot more research we need to do to understand the ins and outs of it. That was Dr. Andrew Govis, who's a senior lecturer in sports and exercise science. And, you know, the takeaway from all of that is uh, consistency is key. That's boring, isn't it? But it's the truth. And you have to really do something consistently and with effort to get results, no matter how great the hype is. (laughs) Hate to break it to you. All right, now for today's headlines. It is Monday, July 3rd. Thousands of Australians have rallied for the Yes campaign over the weekend with events held in communities right across the country in support of the referendum for The Voice. So this is the beginning of a ramp up in the campaign until the referendum, which is most likely to be in October. Um, They need to do something, Katrina, because support for the Yes campaign has really been sliding over the last few months. Yeah, News Poll returned its first majority support for the no vote with 47% indicating they would not support the Indigenous Voice referendum, 43% indicating they would. The referendum will ask us whether we support a change to the constitution to create a body called The Voice, which will make representations to Parliament and the government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I thought that the yes uh, rallies over the weekend. They were really low-key family affairs, kind of like a day on the green or sausage sizzles, which, Mm. you know, is really nice to see. But the no campaign, by contrast, is looking really slick and um, not not so much aggressive, but it's definitely got more teeth than the yes campaign so far. Yeah, generous read on these rallies around the country yesterday that was that, you know, it's going more grassroots, it's trying to build up support at a very community level, but a cynical read would say they were very small and there's not a lot of momentum coming out into these events for the Yes campaign. So it'll be interesting to see how how it changes from here and, and what the Yes campaign has up its sleeve to try and win back support as we actually get closer to the vote. I remember in 2000, you had hundreds of thousands of people walking across the Harbour Bridge for reconciliation. And it was this very powerful, simple, symbolic moment of wanting to support Indigenous Australians and bring the country together. Not seeing that kind of energy this time, but I wonder if if that will change in the coming months. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has sounded the alarm on the US Supreme Court saying it is creeping dangerously towards authoritarianism after a number of controversial rulings. So two of these are striking down affirmative action in colleges, meaning that race can no longer be considered a factor in uni admissions. The Supreme Court rulings also throw in doubt Joe Biden's landmark student debt forgiveness plan. And I guess, Tom, people are saying that, you know, if you need proof that elections have consequences, this is it. 
the nine-member bench of the Supreme Court is dominated by six Conservatives, half of whom were nominated by Donald Trump. Yeah, so AOC, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is firing up about this. And I think a lot of people are, particularly that affirmative action ruling on uni admissions. So universities can now no longer try and boost the enrolment of a certain ethnic group. So, you know, you might have had a marginalised group that hasn't had some of the privileges and advantages of of other ethnic groups. So you want to get more of them, you know, into university admissions and access to that amazing level of education. You know, for example, if it was in Australia, you might look at a university and say, well, Indigenous people are underrepresented, but, um, you know, there's been intergenerational trauma. So we need to do more to support this group. That will no longer now be legal in America. So you can understand why that's angered so many people. And yeah, like you said, you just, you look at the Supreme Court, um, the makeup of the Supreme Court, where unlike in Australia, you never know which way a judge votes. In America, they wear their their sort of political Mm -hmm. colours on their sleeve and you have six out of nine judges that are conservative making these rulings that affect everyone right across America. In in some ways, they're, they're even more powerful than the Congress. And Australians are being urged to exercise a high degree of caution when travelling to France. And that's because of the um, wild scenes, these riots around the country. Uh, More than 700 people have been arrested and 45 officers injured in a fifth night of rioting. They do know how to riot in France. So this one started with the shooting of a 17-year-old of North African descent, was shot by police during a traffic stop. So France, in a way is having a Black Lives Matter moment. A relative of this boy, Nahel Mazouk, is calling for the laws that allow police officers to use their guns in traffic stops to be changed. And, you know, a lot of this is being wrapped up on social media and, and there are calls for, you know, pro-rioting content to be taken down on TikTok and Twitter because um, it's just fanning the flames. I mean, rioters even broke into a Volkswagen dealership and just took all the cars. Mm. Um, a lot of these rioters are quite young as well, so that... That really is is a significant change in the landscape in France. Yeah, we'll keep watching that one to see where that protest movement goes, um, if the unrest continues, if it leads to any meaningful change in the way people are policed in France. Um, that is it for our headlines and that is it for our episode. So here we are at the end of the episode ending the headlines. It's a bit of a strange <laughs> new feeling. <laughs> yeah. So let us know what you think. If, if this is working for you, drop us a line. If it's not, if you really like the way it was, we'd also love to hear from you. Um, you know, this is the beauty of podcasts. It can really respond to, to you, our audience. Mm. Um, so, yeah, stay in touch and have a good day. Listener.